Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning to open the Word of God with you, as always. Uh, last time I preached a couple of months ago, I mentioned that we're going to be going through the book of Philippians uh, when I do have the pleasure of preaching. So today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Uh, for the sake of context, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and go all the way through the 14th verse. Let's start there together. <clears throat> Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, to the glory and praise of God. And here's our primary passage this morning. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's pray this morning as we get started. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the richness of your word that you have blessed us with Christ, that you have blessed us with salvation and sanctification, Lord. Thank you that we can come together this morning and open your word together and learn from it. I pray that our, uh, our eyes and our hearts would be opened. I pray that the, the words I speak this morning would be glorifying to you and nothing more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So opening up this passage this morning, First and foremost, we see that the gospel was spreading rapidly throughout Paul's imprisonment. We see that Paul did not see his imprisonment, his temporary earthly circumstances, as a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Paul knew and explained in great detail to the Philippians all throughout the book that as long as he had breath to live as Christ, to die as gain, that he was an ambassador of Christ and for Christ. And that the, the circumstances of his imprisonment, while hard, was actually advancing the gospel in real tangible ways. In verse 12 here, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So we see here Paul has an initial concern that the Philippians would be discouraged by his imprisonment. That maybe with Paul goes the gospel. If Paul's in chains, maybe the gospel is too. Last time we were in this book, uh, in May, we saw the great love and the joy that was shared between Paul and the church at Philippi. And so he's quick to let them know that what's happening to him was of great benefit to the gospel. 
The gospel was greater than Paul, and he wanted to be certain that the Philippians understood that his chains were bearing fruit for the gospel. He was, in essence, taking the focus away from himself and away from his own set of circumstances and putting the focus squarely on the advancement of, of the gospel. We see in verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. His captors, the imperial guard, had become aware of the gospel of Christ through Paul. And we know from Philippians 4.22 that some of them had become Christians when he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The imperial guard at this time would have been the Praetorian guards. These guards to whom Paul were chained were hardened, skillful, hand-selected men who were in charge of all of the emperor's security and intelligence operations at the time. They would have been very close to the emperor and considered part of his expansive household. Similar to today, right, we have a, we have a president and we have the White House in which is his administration, which is hundreds of people. We could say that today the White House is the, the household of the president. It was similar in this time. You had Caesar, and then you had his household, which included his administration. Everything from high-ranking officials and advisors to praetorian guards to various types of staff who would cook and clean and other things. For greater than three centuries, the praetorians were security for the upper political class, rising to a point of power where they successfully overthrew emperors and replaced them with someone of their own choosing. They were also in charge of important prisoners that came to Rome from elsewhere, particularly political prisoners. So the protocol at this time, when Paul was enslaved, when Paul was, excuse me, in chains, was that the important prisoner was chained to a guard at all times. No freedom whatsoever from the guard. This means that in, in all moments and in all activities, Paul had a guard chained to him physically. When he ate, when he slept, when he wrote, when he taught those who came to see him, when he dictated letters to the churches, like Philippians, Ephesians, and many others, a guard was always present and physically attached to him. They were chained to Paul, not as some type of a, a waiter or a nurse. They, they would have no real concern for his well-being, right? They would not have been sympathetic or even particularly accommodating towards Paul. Praetorians were concerned with keeping their prisoners alive and chained, and no more than that. Paul was eventually executed in Rome, as we know from historical records, which was also a duty of the Praetorians. Every six hours, each guard would be relieved by another guard. So each day, four guards would rotate through this assignment. During the time of Paul's imprisonment in Rome, it's safe to say that he interacted with hundreds, if not potentially thousands, of these elite Praetorians. And that's a difficult circumstance, right? Imprisonment is hard enough. But to be physically chained to someone, no privacy of any kind, no moments to yourself, right? No way to escape. That's difficult. It's very difficult. It would be hard to be chained to anyone, even someone you deeply love for two years, right? 
There's probably, my guess would be, there's no one in this room you would like to be chained to for two years. Um, Don't look at your spouse right now. But think of all the things you do throughout the day, right? You eat, you sleep, you have biological functions that must be addressed. You move about your home freely as you will. And for Paul, someone was carefully observing him for years. He was contained in a, a small apartment under house arrest that was used specifically for prisoners who weren't quite thrown in the jail, the common jail, but still had to be chained to a Praetorian. Those in jail cells were chained to walls, which might have actually been a little better, a little more privacy perhaps, than being chained to a physical guard. So the trial that Paul is going through here as he is uh, dictating this letter to the Philippians it is extreme. I think we would judge that to be an extreme trial. But let's look at Paul's chains. Let's look at his imprisonment from a, a slightly different perspective. Paul does not express dismay or hopelessness in these circumstances. His attitude is not, woe is me. I'm in jail for no good reason. His attitude was not an attitude of defeat or of depression or even of severe misgivings. The last sermon that I preached went through an earlier passage in Philippians, and it was almost exclusively focused on Paul's joy in all circumstances. It pours out of the book of Philippians over and over again, the joy that he found in his circumstances. So, so his attitude, his God-given, God-inspired attitude here is how to best advance the gospel while chained to a hostile guard by doing the work of God, witnessing to the guard, writing many books of the Bible as he was inspired to do so, and so on. And in verse 13 we see, at this point, the whole imperial guard, it says, had heard the gospel from this one prisoner. Not only was Paul chained to a guard, but I would argue that the more relevant circumstance here is that a guard was chained to Paul. Paul was chained to a guard and a guard was chained to him. An unbelieving guard in a prestigious position that could not harm Paul, that could not kill Paul, and also could not leave for six hours. It's very easy to guess what Paul's topic of conversation would be with the ultimate captive audience. It might not be so much that Paul was restrained by the guard, but that the guard was restrained by him. And he used that opportunity, not by focusing inward on his own circumstances, but on focusing on what Christ would have him do there. And so he preached the word and he witnessed. The chains that bound him to his captors also bound the captors to possibly one of the greatest evangelists of all time. We'll get into this uh, in more detail later, but oftentimes our own trials fit this mold pretty well also, right? A trial comes upon us. We have to face it. You know, the only way out is through, right? And it's going to take time. So what do you do with it while you have it? What do you do with that trial when it comes upon you? Do they take hold of you? Or you, who have the Holy Spirit of God within your soul, do you take hold of them and use them for the glory of the God who sent them to you? 
and for your own personal sanctification. You see, if Paul had been downtrodden here, if he had been losing hope, if he had been focused on his own suffering, the gospel would likely have had very little effect on these guards. They were used to suffering. They saw suffering every day. They caused much of it. So if, if the guards see a suffering man with a poor attitude, trying to tell the guards how they can have just what he had, which was a poor attitude in prison, and probably getting beheaded or thrown to the lions soon, that is not an appealing message. That is not an appealing manner to present the gospel of Christ. But Paul, instead, was rejoicing in the work of God through his own personal suffering. So what the imperial guard would have seen and would have become known throughout all of their ranks was, yes, that Paul was a prisoner. But he was a prisoner that had such a fire and such a joy and such a passion burning inside of him that even the chains could not put it out. They would have heard his ministry to other Christians. They would have seen the love of those, like we looked at last time, who came to visit Paul. They would have seen that Paul's joyful obsession in the worst of circumstances was Christ. Chains could not stop his passion for his heavenly king. That's a wonderful, wonderful witness. And it's a wonderful witness because of the depth of the trial. Right? Suffering in Paul's life and in our own life, suffering is not a time to pull back. It's a time to re-engage spiritually. Because when trials come, the blessings and the inspiration and the comfort of God come with them. Look at verse uh, 14. What was the result of Paul's chains? It says this, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Not merely more bold, but much more bold. The Christians around Paul, they saw his imprisonment and the result of it. They saw the Praetorians and the household of Caesar begin to accept Christ one by one as God worked out that plan of salvation through Paul. And Paul is careful here to give the ultimate reason why they could become more bold when he says, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Their confidence was in the Lord by viewing Paul's circumstances. So they became much more bold not because of earthly circumstances, not because Paul had a good attitude, but because they could see the work of the Lord and the hand of God upon Paul and how he reacted to that in his chains and in his suffering. Christian trials often bring about boldness and endurance and greater faith among many other blessings. This was truly a moment where those observing Paul, with those who came to visit him and those who heard about his circumstances, could, could step back and say, what can man do to me? <laughs> They've done everything to Paul at this point. He's been, he's been beaten, and he's been shipwrecked, and he's been stoned, he's been chained to a guard for a couple of years, and the gospel just advances. And Paul is filled with joy. He's not shaken, he's not doubting, he's not fearful. We could almost see their attitudes at this point being, fine, throw me in jail like Paul. Let's see how many guards I can witness to. 
right? Maybe there's a couple Paul hasn't gotten to yet. God gives his own people what they need, when they need it, and often through very difficult circumstances. And the blessings, such as boldness, that come from God can encourage and strengthen more than just the one receiving them, but the others around them as well. We have far more biblical examples of God giving his people what they need in difficult times than we have time to review this morning. And so the Christians who saw Paul endure through these circumstances became much more bold to speak the word without fear in the Lord. Paul could confidently say to these Christians, like he did in Philippians 4.19, from a place of deep experience and faith, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. His life reflected that in all circumstances, including the present time when he wrote this. And so the believers were emboldened because he suffered well and with joy and because his confidence was in God who supplied everything he needed. John Bloom, uh, author John Bloom, once wrote for DesiringGod.org that God often gives us the most precious gifts in the most painful packaging. And when we do open those painful gifts, not only do we benefit from it, but so do others around us in seeing the hand of God in that thing. The call to love your neighbor does not exclude times of trial. Trials often give us an even greater platform for sharing the gospel and the blessings of God in our lives. The manner by which we go through difficulty is a direct witness to those who are watching us go through it. It's a time in which we can display the Spirit of God within us and give a great example of how the Lord cares for His own. One of the greatest ways we can witness to the unbelieving world is to suffer well and with joy. That's a foreign thing in a fallen world, to suffer well and with joy. The world turns to everything but Christ to alleviate suffering, right? People numb themselves with drugs or pursue false ideologies that are designed to puff up their own egos, or they turn to excessive entertainment just to forget the problems, or simply attempt to flee whenever hardship comes. But when we suffer, when we suffer, we can show them that there is a better way, that there can be joy in suffering, that Christ brings more than the world ever could lived out in your life through your trials. So no matter how small, right, we're, we're talking huge trials here with Paul, but this, this applies all the way down to the smallest of things because we're living in a world that's constantly watching, constantly watching to see how we react. From the largest issue to the smallest, we're always exposing others to the gospel. Think about this small example. And I, I chose this example because of how minuscule it is to illustrate a point. So bear with me here, okay? So you go to a restaurant with a group of people. And your food, when it arrives, is not exactly how you ordered it. Maybe you asked for something to be taken off and it wasn't. Or you asked for something to be put on and it wasn't. This is a microscopic thing. Is it not? A microscopic thing. I really don't even want to call this a trial. Especially because... Realistically, there's a couple billion people on this planet who will never have a meal so luxurious as what you're probably about to eat. 
right? But in that scenario, in this, this absolutely small thing, your response speaks volumes to those around you. The waiter's going to notice your response. The people that you came to the restaurant with are going to notice your response. Maybe the people sitting at the next table, depending on how your voice carries and what your response is, right? Do you respond to such a small, small thing with grace and with kindness and with understanding? Are you displaying that you are more concerned with getting every ingredient perfectly right in a dish that may have 50 of them? Or are you more concerned about the picture you paint of Christ in your life by your response? So from that ridiculously small scenario all the way up to the Apostle Paul, writing nearly half the New Testament while going through stonings and beatings and jailings and eventual execution, what we do, we must remember this, what we do always affects those around us, particularly when we're going through difficulty of any kind. It affects them towards or away from the Christ that we serve. You may be going through physical hardship or spiritual hardship or mental hardship or financial hardship or hardship brought on family or a whole host of other things. Everyone around you understands hardship. But when those around you who are more likely than not to understand on some level what you're going through, when those around you see their trials, do they become emboldened because you show them the blessings and the wounds? Or do they see someone who does not exercise the faith they claim to have? Matthew 7, 14 reminds us, the way is hard that leads to life. We know this. The Bible is very clear. The way is hard, but it is also the way that leads to life. Right? We can draw encouragement from 1 Corinthians 3.16. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? And because God's Spirit has been gifted to us like it was gifted to Paul and all of the believers back in those times, because we are His, now we know, Romans 8.28, that we all know, right? For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. You know, being God's temple and having God's Spirit dwelling in you is, is similar to being all the riches you can possibly imagine, right? Mountains of gold are at your disposal. God has blessed you with that. And then he also sends you a bill every now and then, a trial of $1,000. Don't complain about the bill. Don't complain about that. Because it's insignificant compared to the mountains of blessing that he has poured out. To your life. We can often feel, uh, I don't think any of us have experience being chained to anyone, not that I'm aware of. Uh, if you have been chained to someone, let's talk about that afterwards. But we can, we can often feel chained to other people or to maybe a job that you dislike, a boss you dislike family member that you dislike or, or a whole host of other circumstances. In that situation, which was very much the situation we see modeled here in Philippians, in that situation, who has the spirit of the holy God in them? Who's been given the blessings of God in that moment? Who's been given the strength that they need from above, not only to just persevere and get through it, 
but to do so with joy. You have, right? If you belong to Christ, the very Spirit of God dwells inside of you. Listen, Christ, Christ did not come to earth to take on a mortal body, to live a perfect life, to suffer a brutal death, unlike anything we've ever seen, to pour his Holy Spirit into redeemed sinners of his own accord that he purchased with his own holy blood to then have them shrink back from hardship and fail the gospel at the very moment when the gospel should be everything to them. Are you chained to the guards in your life or are they chained to you? Most of us are probably familiar, at least on some level, with the story of Paul Bunyan, uh, author of The Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of the most translated books of all time, written in a prison cell. Let me share a few details here that you may be unaware of. Bunyan was sentenced in 1660 to prison. He ended up spending 12 years in jail at that time uh, and had other sentences later. His crime was preaching the gospel of Christ in a manner that was unapproved by the state. Two years before he entered prison in 1658, his wife passed away, leaving Bunyan with four small children. The oldest was eight and was blind. In 1659, he remarried and was promptly thrown into prison. His wife, Elizabeth, the same year he entered prison, delivered a stillborn child as she struggled to make ends meet for the extremely impoverished Bunyan family. And from that great personal suffering among the, that family. And from the imprisonment came a number of books, including The Pilgrim's Progress, which has never been out of print, has been translated into 200 languages, and has been used for the Lord's purpose for almost 350 years. The trials and suffering by a single man and his family in the 1600s can be used by God to save and strengthen untold numbers of souls. Bunyan did not give up on his glorious king, just as Paul and Job and thousands of others in the past have not when faced with great hardship because the pearl of great price is worth a great price. Not that we earn it, because we don't. But when we're given the magnificent gift from God, we are eager to show its overwhelming beauty to everyone around us and to express our gratitude and our unfailing love to him who bestowed it upon us, even in chains. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Afflictions are often the black background in which God sets the jewels of his children's graces to make them shine better. It was only a little while ago that you were on your knees praying, Lord, I fear I have no faith. Let me know that I do. Wasn't this really, even if unconsciously, praying for trials? How can you know that you have faith until your faith is exercised? Depend on it. God often sends us trials that your graces might be discovered and that we may be assured of their existence. End quote. Trials give us opportunity, like easy times never do, to test the reality of our faith to see the reality of our own sanctification being worked out by the one who saved us. Again, are you chained to your trials or are they chained to you? We have another amazing example of how to suffer well when trials do come in Scripture and how Christ suffered in Gethsemane. He shows us that being sorrowful for a time is not sinful. Right? 
It is not. It is not sinful to be sorrowful and to be beaten down for a time by the trial that's come upon us. Don't take anything I'm saying here as saying that you have to be instantly joyous when a massive trial comes your way. Sorrow for a time is completely acceptable and normal and modeled by Christ. Matthew 26, 38 through 39 says this, Then he said to them, this is Christ speaking to the disciples, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then in verse 42, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He models suffering for the glory of God. Christ shows us the way forward here, right? We cry out to God. We make our request made known to him. And we proceed with your will be done. Knowing that that heavenly father loves us as dear children. Whom he has personally selected for salvation and adoption as sons and for this exact trial. Again, are you chained to the circumstances around you or are they chained to you? Can circumstances snuff out your light or can't they? Trials not only can be used to show the glory of God to others, but also to sharpen and refine us. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There are so many examples in Scripture that talk about going through trials and times of refining and use imagery that involve pain. Iron sharpens iron. Iron's being shaved away. Not pleasant. Being refined as gold. Gold is melting away and imperfections are being burnt away. Not pleasant for the gold, Right? And as we, as we grow in godliness, we are being refined and receiving more spiritual blessing than we are usually aware of at the time through trials. Men, many of you spend yourselves at your jobs. You dedicate thousands of hours for the provision of your family. There are trials and there's sacrifice inherent in that. Women, many of you spend yourselves on the deepest level for your children. There are great trials that come in the raising of children. They are emotional, mental, spiritual, physical, often all at once. If you must be spent, as you must, be spent for Christ. Not income, right? Not the things of the world. Romans 5, 3 through 5, gives us great encouragement because it shows the blessings of God that are poured out upon our sufferings. It's a list, if you will. It says this, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There are no excuses available to us for rejecting the gifts of God because they're wrapped in trials. A heavenward focus 
kept in our hearts by the Spirit of God, has a devastating effect against doubt and against fear. It can turn suffering into rejoicing. It can turn trials into a harvesting of blessings that are God-sent. It can turn hardship into an amazing witness to those who see. There's a, there's a scene in heaven in Revelation 4.10 that is remarkably relevant to this passage. It says this, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. You know what these crowns are? We have two passages that tell us. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Those in heaven are, are casting the crowns of their sufferings, of their refinings, of their earthly struggles, of the righteousness given them by Christ before the king who so faithfully brought them through all those things. Our actions here on earth the way we spend our lives, the way we handle trials, and the way we seek to use them for the glory of Christ has tangible reward for us, not just here, but in heaven as well. Where we can take the rewards of a life well spent in the strength of Christ and cast them before our King and say, not of myself, and not for myself, but for you and because of you, my King. There's nothing wrong with desiring to have a pile of golden crowns to throw at his feet in heaven, right? All this begs the question, how do we suffer well? How do we handle trials well when they come? How do we become much more bold in the Lord as the Christians around Paul did? We do so by believing and acting upon the promises that God has given us. Not merely by knowing them in our heads, but applying them and acting upon them. Let me encourage you this morning with a few passages from God's word that give us these promises. Look at the promises of God in suffering. If you're concerned about providing for your family, God says in Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows you need them all. If it feels as if everything that comes your way is bitter and hard and you can't get a win in life, read Matthew 7, 11, which says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Can the God who brought Paul through immense trial and yet filled him with joy and saved countless souls through his ministry not also bring you through yours? Which is greater, the circumstances and the trials that assault you or the Holy Spirit within you? Which one do you act like is greater? Romans 12, 12 reminds us to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. There are many more passages like these in Scripture because we need to have them stored up in our hearts for the trials that will come. 
They come all the time. As Christians, our ultimate victory is assured. The only question that remains is how well do we persevere through the remaining life we have? Is it for the glory of Christ or isn't it? Do we hide our light when times are tough or not? Do you focus on Christ in the storm like Peter did or do you focus on the waves? Do you receive the blessings from God at the end of your trial because you persevered relying in his strength or do we turn back to human wisdom and fail? This is the thought of the week. This is the, the sermon in a nutshell. In all of your circumstances, are you held down by them or are you using them, actively seeking to use them in his strength for his purpose and for his glory because you hold him to be more precious than your own temporary suffering? Are you chained to the guards or are they chained to you? Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that in all of our circumstances, we would rely fully upon you and upon your promises. I pray that we would take hold of your blessings, that we would be sanctified through our trials, that we would use the trials to witness in a powerful way to those around us. I pray that our trials would strengthen our faith that they would strengthen those around us, that our focus would never be on ourselves in them. Lord, I thank you for this example that we have here of Paul and the way that you advance the gospel through the sufferings that you sent him. I pray that we would act upon the spirit that you have given us, that we would act upon your blessings that they would not merely be head knowledge, but something we show to the world for your glory. Lord, I pray that when we have trials, that when suffering, great suffering even, comes to us, that our focus would remain pure. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.